Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. And happy Thanksgiving in advance. Um, our family is going to be on the road thank, uh, celebrating Thanksgiving with family out of state, and so we'll not uh, be here on Wednesday to join with many of you uh, in the church Thanksgiving celebration, so I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving uh, right now. I wonder what it would feel like if at Thanksgiving this year, you'd been invited to spend Thanksgiving with the closest of your family members, parents, uh, your children, brothers and sisters, and when you arrived at that place, at that home, that, that place of warmth that you'd been anticipating, uh, you walked in and you heard the conversations going on all through the house, uh, but no one paid a lot of attention to you in your arrival. You were just kind of in the background as far as they were concerned. And then what if when it came time to eat dinner, to have the, 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 the Thanksgiving feast that I personally look forward to in a big way. I love Thanksgiving. It really is my favorite holiday. Uh, but what if, what if when it came time, uh, you discovered that there really wasn't a place for you at the big table? You know, the main table where they're going to place the turkey and all, all the trimmings and all of that. And um, they didn't know what to do with you, so you got, you got stuck at the card table, right? With three other people they didn't know what to do with. Some of you are having ghosts of Thanksgiving past right now. I can tell that. Uh, maybe you got to sit on a kitty chair or a piano bench if you were really lucky. How would you feel about that experience? Well, that experience in some ways describes how many single adults feel within the local church. Listen to this from one single Christian. Speaking about single adults, we tend to think of our of families as the standard from which we have deviated. Their lives are the reality. Ours are the imitation, the variant, the makeshift. Instead of reshaping our own ways of living, we cobble them together and loosely make do and perhaps unconsciously wait to be rescued from our islands and received into the world, the, into the real world. That's the way a lot of single people, unfortunately, experience church world and church life, which is why I've been so eager to bring this message to us this morning, because this message centering on the topic of singleness from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is certainly for single adults in the church, but it's for all of us in the church, because we all need to know how to serve well and to care well for single believers. Because again, far too often they feel like they're on the sidelines and everybody else is in the game in church world. And this is an important message because the world around us is very much a world of single adults. Uh, it's, very, it's being called a post-marriage world where people are waiting longer and longer if they're going to get married. Typical age is well into their 30s now if people decide to get married at all. And whether we think that's good or bad or, or neutral, that's the world that we want to reach out to with the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we need to know how to serve well our singles within the church as well as to reach out with the gospel 
to those who are in, have that status as well. And so this morning, let's focus our attention on 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Please turn there in your Bible. If you haven't gotten there already, there are Bibles available in the back, and it's on page 956 in that Bible. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 40. We want to do so in order that we might build a biblical theology of singleness that is shaped by God's Word in order that we might better serve the singles brothers and sisters in our midst. So just a little word about the context of 1 Corinthians 7. We begin at verse 25 where it says, now concerning. And remember that a few weeks ago when we were in chapter, in this chapter, in the first verse, we began with those same words, now concerning. We've moved into this section of 1 Corinthians, uh, the letter here where Paul is writing in response to the believers at Corinth, asking some questions they had written to him about. They had some questions and he is responding to them. And the question he's answering here in verse 25 is very similar to what he answered in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, and obviously that's why uh, they're together. But there's a little bit of a challenge uh, interpretively because there's a challenge uh, in terms of translation here in the first couple words. Because if you're reading in the English Standard Version, if you have a different version, you're going to notice it's different because this is the only one that uses this word. It begins, now concerning the betrothed. And there's a footnote to tell you why they decided or help you understand why they decided to translate the word that's there, uh, betrothed. This is a challenging translation uh, because of, just because of our culture and the difference of language. The, the word there used in the original in Greek uh, is a word that simply means uh, now concerning the virgins or now concerning virgins. Now, some translations translate it that way. That's a challenge because... What Paul said when he said, now concerning virgins and what the, how that would have hit the ears of people in his day was, now concerning young women, young unmarried women. And we don't necessarily use the word virgins just to talk about uh, young women, and, and our understanding of that word really doesn't really bring people to mind, it really brings an aspect of someone, namely that they're not have, they have not been nor are involved sexually. And so you can translate it virgins, but that's not helpful. You can translate it young women, but that's not completely helpful because Paul is here talking to, to men and women who have been engaged or betrothed. And even that's a little bit of a challenge because we don't, we don't have betrothal in our uh, culture. We have engagement, and betrothal is an engagement that's almost like a marriage. You remember, uh, we're getting close to Christmas season here, that Joseph and Mary were betrothed to be married but when, Je when, jo when Joseph found out that she was expecting, he thought about doing what quietly? He thought about divorcing her. That tells you how serious a betrothal was. And so we have some interpretive challenges here. But, but the bottom line is that Paul, whether your translation says virgins or young women or betrothed, um, probably the most helpful translation is the NLT on this one because it translates it uh, to those who are engaged. And so when you hear betrothal in this text, think about couples, young couples, who are engaged to be married. And now the gospel has come. And remember, there have been questions in Corinth about, okay, now that the gospel has come and, and we've trusted in Jesus, does that change things? Would it be better to be unmarried, 
Would it be better for single people today to stay single? Would it be better for married people to split up so that they can focus on Jesus? Is there something more spiritual about being single and being a follower of Jesus? After all, Paul thinks it's a really good thing. And so with all of that context sort of flowing around us now, hopefully I didn't confuse us all too much, let's jump into the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed or engaged people, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if the betrothed or engaged woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried man or the unmarried or betrothed woman or young woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord." If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed or engaged to be wife, and his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let, him marry, let them marry, it is no sin, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then... He who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think I too have the Spirit of God. What do you think? Does the Apostle Paul have the Spirit of God? We all good with that? Yeah, we think so too, Paul. We, we agree with you. This is God's holy word. Here's how I'd like to proceed this morning. Paul talks, he addresses singleness, and he talks about why it is an issue, and he talks about why it is, an issue, and it is not an issue. So, so two big themes this morning. Why singleness is the issue, and why, or excuse me, why singleness is not the issue, and why singleness is the issue. And then I want to sort of answer the so what 
uh, question. What are the implications of this, this reality? First of all, why singleness is not the issue? Why is Paul saying singleness is not the issue? Now, Singles are often, single adults are often encouraged to come to this text because it is one of the texts in the Bible that addresses the status of being single very much head on. And it's a good text for all of us to know, I think, especially if you're in this uh, status of life as a single follower of Jesus. But if you come to this passage looking for a definitive ruling as to whether or not you should get married, you're going to be very disappointed because Paul doesn't give an authoritative ruling. In fact, he says so right at the beginning. This is not a command. I don't have a directive from the Lord Jesus. We don't have Jesus, you know, on, on paper having said this specific thing about singles and whether or not you should get married. But I'm going to give you uh, my judgment. I'm going to give you my opinion. Of course, he happens to mention he's sort of pulling out his apostleship as someone who, who uh, by the mercy of the Lord, whose judgment, um, whose judgment ought to be listened to, quite honestly. And so Paul is expressing his wisdom. Of course, this is God's authoritative word, so the, the opinion we get from Paul we take with, with a great deal of weight and authority because he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And his guiding principle is it is good for a person in terms of their marital status or not to remain as he or she is. He says uh, right, right at the beginning, are you bound to a spouse? Uh, don't seek marriage. Uh, are you not bound to a spouse? Or, or, or Yeah, are you, are you not married? Don't seek to be married. Uh, but if you decide to be married, you have not sinned. And then in verse 39, if you are married, it is till death do you part. And so uh, Paul again repeats this guideline about remaining as you are uh, in verse 36. And Paul says, you know what, if, if as he said last time around, your passions are strong and you feel like you need to be married, then you, you're not sinning to become married. So why all this, this remaining? Why this Advice to remain as you are. Well, it goes back to the center of this passage, to the central reality in verses 17 through 24. Something has happened, Paul says, to you guys. You are not the same people you used to be before the gospel came, before you, you heard the call of the gospel. That is the key word in verses 17 through 24. God has called you, verse 17. The, the, the word call uh, is in there five times, plus the word call is in there another three or four times. God has called you. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 22, for he who was called by the Lord is a bondservant. As a bondservant is the Lord's freedman. You were bought with a price, verse 23. Do not become bondservants to men, so, brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was when you were called, there remain with God. Paul is reminding them of the central truth in your life. You, you, you heard the, the call of the gospel. That's not even the call that Paul is talking about here. That, that, that's the general gospel call. A lot of people in Corinth heard, heard the gospel, heard uh, God calling out through the gospel being preached when Paul came there. But some, some, the Holy Spirit changed their hearts. Some were enabled to believe. 
Some were transformed from the inside out and so that they repented of their sin and embraced Jesus by faith. For them, the call of the gospel was effectual. And that's the call that Paul is talking about here, the effectual call of the gospel, the call that was heard and that was responded to in faith and through which people were transformed and enfolded into the body of Christ. And so Paul says, you are no longer belong to yourself. You now belong to your new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. His voice was louder than all the other voices. You, you heard the call and you responded. And so you have a new allegiance to him. You have a new identity as a child of God. And you have a new way of viewing time. Look at verse 29. Paul says, Time has changed for you because you are a follower of Jesus. What I mean is this, brothers and sisters, the, the appointed time is growing short. The appointed time, the, the word that Paul uses here that gets translated appointed time means season or, or era or, or epoch, E-P-O-C-H, and, and an era or a season of time. And, and it's shortening, and, and the, the season of time that he's talking about is the season between the two advents or comings of Jesus. Next week, we're going to begin to celebrate Advent, Jesus' first coming. That's all the word Advent means, Jesus' arrival or his coming. And, and all of the Old Testament of Scripture anticipates the, the Advent or the coming of Messiah. And all throughout Scripture, it indicates that when Jesus comes, and Jesus indicated this when he came and he, he preached that the kingdom of God has come, that when Jesus comes, that first Advent, that the last days have begun. You know, we often think of, of the word eschatology. If you know that word, uh, it's a word about the study of last things, the study of the end times, the study of everything that's going to happen when, all, when everything gets wrapped up. Well, Jesus' coming, his first coming, Christmas, that was an eschatological event, meaning it was the beginning of the end. The last days and everything that God would do to redeem a people for himself, wrap things up in this world, judge evil, and create a new heavens and a new earth, that all began with Jesus' first coming, his first advent. And now we live between the two comings of Jesus because Jesus is coming again, amen? And that is the second advent of Christ. And so here we are in this era, in this season, in this epoch where, we, where the time is being shortened, Paul says. You're living between the advents, between the comings of, of Jesus Christ. And that changes everything for your reality. And that's why I'm saying it's good for you, for the purpose of the kingdom, to remain as you are. Martin Luther once said that he had but two days on his calendar, today and that day the day of Jesus returning, the day of Jesus' second advent. And Paul is saying that's how we should be living our lives, brothers and sisters, as those who understand that all we're promised in Scripture is today, and we're looking forward to that day. There's a sense of urgency. The time, the appointed season is, sh is shortening. Paul says it again in verse 31, at the end. The, the present form of this world, it is passing away. There is a new heavens, a new earth that will one day overtake it when Jesus returns. Now, how did Paul know that? 
Well, it had to do with this this present distress that they were living in, in verse 26. There seems to be some present crisis that he writes about or some some distress. Um, We don't know what it was. Historically, we can guess, but we don't know. But we know one thing. Uh, The Corinthians knew what it was. When Paul wrote to them about a present distress, they knew exactly what he was talking about. We don't know what the crisis was. We know what the crises are in our own day, don't we? A very divisive election that we went through and the repercussions of that that we feel. Just this past week, the 700th homicide in the city of Chicago. Refugees from Syria and other places pouring out. The crises of our own day remind us that the time is shortening. Jesus said these are but the birth pangs. These are the beginning of the birth pangs. But the reminders, the reminders that we ought not become too attached to this world. And that's why Paul says beginning in verse 29, hey, if you're married, there's a sense in which you should not hold on to that tightly. There's a sense in which you should live as though you were not. That's not that you're not, you're not responsible to be a husband or be a wife, but don't hold on to it so tightly. There are greater realities. Whatever you rejoice in, whatever makes you happy, you need to live as though you're not holding on to that. Whatever you weep about, whatever you mourn about, live as though you were not mourning. You possess stuff, and yet you need to live with open hands. You're involved in the business of this world, whether it's the education or the arts or the sciences or the business world, yet living as not engrossed and involved in them. It's not that you're unplugged. It's not that you're disengaged, Paul says, but you need to have a detachment. Not disengaged, but detached for the sake of the kingdom. Not having your heart wrapped up in these things. Not placing your your hope in them. So that your life is not over if you don't get everything you want in this world. Because, dear friends, whether you're married or whether you're single or whatever your present status is, your true citizenship, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, is in heaven. And your true citizenship is in his kingdom. And so God's call on your life far exceeds all other calls, all other claims in importance, including whatever your status is with regard to marriage. The claim that God has made on your life through the gospel, that is far more important than anything else, including your status in life. For Paul, singleness was a gift, but he also said that marriage was a gift and that both were gifts from God for a purpose for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. And so we ought not to assign greater value to our status than God does. If you're married, that's wonderful. You have a wonderful gift in a spouse. Love your spouse. But he or she will not be the source of your eternal joy. If you're single, you want to be married, don't make marriage an idol. Your eternal joy is not contingent on having a spouse. You have every bit as much an opportunity to glorify God and be used for his kingdom as any other person. 
So don't hold back. Don't wait to serve Christ with abandon. Now is the opportune time. That's the first point. Paul is saying now is the opportune time. The the time is growing short. One status is not the determining factor in his or her usefulness for the kingdom. Yet, (laughs) Paul has consistently praised and promoted the single life, hasn't he? Back in verse 7, he said, I wish that all of you were as I am, namely, single, unmarried. Verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, he said, I say it is a good thing for them to remain single as I am. And then here again in in our text uh, this morning, verse 26, speaking to single people, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Verse 38, So then he who marries his betrothed does well, but he who refrains from marriage does what? Even better, he says. Verse 40, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, speaking to uh, widows. So why does Paul think so highly of the single life for the Christian? Why does he praise it and promote it? Well, This is where we're going to talk about why it is about singleness. What are the advantages of singleness? I I hope this will be helpful uh, for singles and for all of us, whether you sense that you are gifted with the gift of celibacy as Paul was, or whether you're gifted with singleness for a season in your life. Why is singleness the issue? What are the advantages of the single life? Well, Paul begins to speak about the advantages in verse 28, at the end of the verse where he says, Yet those who would marry, compares the single life to the married life, those who would marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you from that. And then in verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. And then Paul goes on to explain what he means in verse 33 and 34. In verse 33, he says, here's what I want you to be free from. But the married man is anxious or concerned about worldly things, just the regular stuff of life, namely how to please or how to serve his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried man or unmarried woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy, how to pursue sanctification in body and spirit, how to be set apart for the Lord. I appreciate an illustration that I heard Alexander Begg give of this principle. He said, you know, if you're a single man, when this service is over, if you want to go down to Ellison's Bakery and have a donut, no problem. You're just going to go have a donut. You might even have two. By the way, have, have the uh, chocolate-covered long john with the white frosting inside. It is exquisite. I, I digress. Um, you know, you could even have two because you, you're going to have time maybe later this, this afternoon. You're thinking, I've got time. I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to go f- to the gym and work out, whatever it is. is. Your time is your own. Your, your attention is pretty focused. If you're a married man, you better not just go off to Ellison's Bakery without telling anybody. And if you go, you better bring your wife and your kids with you. And you won't just be buying one or two donuts. I mean, that's a buck or two. You're going to be buying a whole dozen, right? Because they're all with you. You probably won't be allowed to have two (laughs) 
because you won't have time to work it off later. And at some point, you're going to be settling an argument about whose donut had more sprinkles on it or not. Your allegiances are rightly multiple, shall we say. And so there's an advantage, Paul says, to the single life. Because singleness, he says, is designated to to minimize your distractions. Uh, Not so you can get donuts, but to minimize your distractions for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. A spouse is a good gift, but a spouse adds to one's concerns, adds to one's cares and responsibilities in the world. The same with children. They are good gifts, but they add to one's concerns and cares in this world. And and by saying worldly things in verse 33, Paul's not making a moral judgment like, like worldliness. He's just saying the things of life, the things of earth, the things that we all deal with in everyday life. One spouse has needs, and those needs need to be served by you. The single person has fewer distractions. He or she is spared from those worldly troubles. It's not a bad thing, but but these are things that compete for a married person's time and attention. So singles, you need to hear this. God is sparing you trouble. God is sparing you additional worry if he has you single now or in for an extended season for however long that is. Too often, singles in the body of Christ are not able to make full use of this advantage because they are distracted by their singleness and maybe distracted by questions like, well, when will I be married? What if marriage is not in my future? I'm not sure how I feel about that. Or I am sure how I feel about it and I don't like it. Why am I not married? There's really only one answer to that question, and it is because your loving Heavenly Father, in His perfect wisdom, has determined that you can best honor Him and find maximum joy as a single disciple of Jesus as many throughout the history of the church have. Think of wonderful examples of single uh, men and women who have served the church well. People like Amy Carmichael and Corey Tenboom. People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and John Stott, or even someone like C.S. Lewis, who, who was married later in life, but for the bulk of his life was a single man. The same thing uh, with Nancy Lee DeMoss, who has served the church so well and continues to do so, and as a single woman and only recently has, been, has become married. And then there are the countless singles that day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out, serve their churches so well, people we all know. Often singles are not able to take advantage of this because they're distracted by time-wasting pursuits. Activities that, that negate the single advantage of time and flexibility, uh, time and social media, obsession over personal appearances, time at the gym, whatever it may be, hobbies that become obsessive, excessive travel. Single Christian, you don't have the responsibilities of, of a spouse, but you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You belong completely to Jesus as a single person. 
And he wants to use you to help build his kingdom. And that is why he wants to, to minimize your distractions for his kingdom. Then there's the other side of the coin. It's really, I, I'm calling it advantage number two, but it's really just the other side of, of minimizing distractions, and it is maximizing devotion. Singleness in, for God's people is designed to maximize devotion. Look at verse 35. Paul writes, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but on the positive side to promote good order and secure your undivided attention, undivided devotion to the Lord. The real concerns of this earthly life divide one's focus and attention. And it's interesting, the word for anxieties or concerns that Paul uses in verse 32 literally means to be divided into parts. And he makes this sort of word play by saying in verse 35 that his goal, which is ultimately God's goal, is for singles to, is to promote their well-being, to secure their, their undivided, their, their singular devotion to Christ. The married person must consider how they can serve their spouse. The single Christian can be entirely focused on Christ, undivided in her attention, completely dialed in. I was thinking about that, focused, completely dialed in, and a face came to mind. It was the face of Michael Phelps at the Summer Olympics. Do you remember this? He was, he was waiting for one of his final races, and that knucklehead was like shadow boxing in front of him. And his, he was totally dialed in, totally focused upon what he was wanted to do. I think that's the kind of focus, maybe with a smile on your face, <laughs> that Paul is writing about here. Unrestrained, complete freedom to follow Jesus, completely dialed in for his kingdom purposes. Church, this is the kingdom perspective on singleness that we all need to have, whatever our status in life. Andrew Farmer, uh, in his book, by the same title, calls this the rich single life. Rich because of wise investments, focused energy on Christ and his kingdom. That's the image of singleness that the Bible gives us, both for the person who is single and for those who are not single but are their brothers and sisters in Christ and want to encourage them. And so I want to conclude uh, talking about five ways that the church can encourage singles in their body and then five ways that singles can pursue undistracted devotion. So first of all, ways for the local church to care for its singles. Number one, to, to all of us, <laughs> Watch your language. Watch your language. Understand that the word family, for those of us who are married and, and have children and, and all of that, it's a warm, happy word. But for a single person, it can mean no singles allowed. If we have this family ministry in that family thing, in this family gathering place, means that 
pastors and teachers need to be careful about the sermon illustrations and the teaching illustrations they use. Are they applicable to, to all kinds of people in our congregation? So number one, we can serve our singles by watching our language and being inclusive. Secondly, related to this, we need to make church world accessible for our single brothers and, and sisters. Uh, so it feels like a place where they belong. It doesn't feel like the, the card table at the Thanksgiving gathering. Ministries that welcome singles and, and make it easy for them to participate and intentionally draw them in. Listen to how one uh, single brother responded to that picture of, of the church. Wow, this vision of church life is very appetizing to a single guy. The picture of a church family that knows what to do with its singles is highly appealing. As sometimes it feels like as a single, you have to live in a subset of, the, of church life and not the real deal. But if we're all after the same thing, ultimately that of, of magnifying Christ and making Him known, then why do we have to be so sectioned off? Parents, this is a vision that we ought to be communicating to our kids. I think most of us parents think, well, we want our kids to, to be married, we want them to give us grandchildren and live happily ever after. And yet Paul uh, praises the single life. He says this is a, a wonderful option, this is a wonderful opportunity for single-minded devo single devotion to Christ. And, and do we ever talk about that with our kids and saying, well, maybe the Lord would call you to this, especially call you to this for the purpose of, of service. Third way that we can serve our singles in the church. Don't assume you know their situation or their struggles. Believe it or not, not all single men struggle with lust. And believe it or not, not all single women are obsessed with marriage. Uh, singleness is not a disease for which marriage is the cure. I think we need to remember as well that there, are diverse, there is a diversity of single people in the body of Christ. There are those who have, have never been married. There are those who have been divorced. There are those who have been widowed. There are those who are single parents. And there are singles in different ages and stages of life who need our care in different ways during those different stages. Fourth way that we can serve our single adults and serve those the Lord brings to us. Invite singles into your home. If you're married, show them what an imperfect marriage looks like up close and personal. Show them what imperfect parenting looks like. Show them in an experiential kind of way that they truly are part of a family. They're part of God's family, the church family. One single woman writes this, Include these individuals in your family activities when possible, especially if they have no family locally or at all. This has meant so much to me, especially when I live very far from my immediate family. Fifth way, final way we can serve singles in the church. Invite a single person not only to your home, but invite them into your life to be a true friend to them. Not, not a project. I heard a sermon about serving singles, and so now I'm going to go see if I can find a single to serve. Be a friend. Disciple a single brother or sister, or be discipled by them. Don't limit your friendships. A single woman writes this, 
I have been so blessed to be friends with many wise married women over the years who I have felt comfortable enough to go to for encouragement with my prayer requests and, yes, even for relationship advice. Those are some ways that we can serve the single adults in our church. How about some ways that singles can pursue undistracted devotion to Jesus? Number one, steward your time wisely. We already touched on this. Identify the time wasters in your life and realize that you have been given more free time than most. I say that with a caveat. Married folks, we, we can't take advantage of that. Let's see, we need something done. Single people have lots of time. Call, call one of them up. But the reality is for, for, the, for most single people, if, if not more time, more flexibility with their time. So if you are a single person, follower of Jesus, steward your time wisely. Secondly, become a known quantity among your local church. Become a known quantity in the local church. Don't assume the church uh, is something just for married people. Don't, don't wait to engage in the church till some other time or season in life. Engage with it now. You know, the, the whole idea of the word fellowship in the Bible, biblical fellowship, is that, that all of us have a partnership in the gospel. We're, we're, we have a share in the gospel together. Thirdly, ways for singles to pursue undistracted devotion. Um, this is a personal request. Cut married people a little slack. Realize sometimes we say dumb stuff. I mean, I say at least three dumb things up here every week, right? Four? Do I hear four? Five? The bit, we'll stop the bidding at five. Sometimes we'd say dumb things. Oh, you're single. Wow. I know the perfect person for you. Really, we just met, and you know the perfect person for me. Gift of prophecy, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> we need to bear with one another. Colossians 3, verse 13. Bear with one another. Fourth, designate, single, designate your home as a Christian home. If you are a single believer and you have your own place, if you live with a roommate or two, your home is a Christian home. Remember what Paul said to, uh, to, to the spouse who had an unbelieving spouse? That because of the one believer, that home was considered holy and even the children were considered holy? If you are a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, your home is a Christian home. It's a Christian household. And to whatever extent you're able, use it to practice hospitality and, and serve others in the body. And then finally, ways for single adults to pursue undistracted devotion to Jesus. Take a risk, or several for the kingdom. Uh, your life is not on hold. Uh, engage with the body of Christ. Join a Bible study where you're the only single there. And they, they need you to understand what it's like to have a single brother or sister in Christ. Disciple a teen. Go on a, go on a mission trip. Listen to how one single believer put this. Be willing to walk through open doors God places in your path. Learn to be content with your life. Not complacent, but content. You never know how God is going to use what you are currently experiencing. God has called all of us out of darkness into His light. 
uh, he, he, is, he has made his claim. We have this new identity in Christ. We are no longer our own. And so, friends, that call takes priority over our lives. Whether single or married, parent, widowed, divorced, young, old, male or female, that takes priority in our lives. There's no other distinction that ought to take priority. And so let's together, as the body of Christ, pursue, making most of this time, this is the time, this is the season, to, to pursue Christ together as His, as his people. Amen. God, we thank you for the diversity of the body of Christ, that you have called us to yourself, you have saved us, you have redeemed us through Jesus, our gracious Redeemer, the one who first loved us, the one who purchased our pardon on Calvary's tree. And God, we pray that our church would be a place where we're people from all different walks of life, all different stages and stations in life could pursue Christ in, an, a, in, an, in a devoted, focused way together. And Lord, I pray this morning uh, in particular for our uh, single brothers and sisters. And Lord, I thank you for calling them to follow Jesus as a single man or a single woman. And Lord, I pray that you would... You would be near to them, that you would show them the goodness of their status in life. God, I pray that you'd fill their lives with wonderful relationships, Christ-honoring relationships. Lord, I pray that you'd help them to use their gifts among the body. And Lord, I pray that as, as the body of Christ, that we would be uh, encouraging of our single brothers and sisters. Lord, we thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.